Hello, welcome to Say That Podcast, where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jeb Brewer. Well, hello. With us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, is Lee Younger. I see that Jed is not on what we would call birthday behavior, although <laughs> he is within his rights to yeah, be you so. know. I'm um I, I'm I'm a bon vivant. I'm a celebrant. I uh you know I like to I like to live a lifestyle of just ongoing merriment and merrymaking. You're you're painting yourself as some kind of Edwardian fop. Yes, yes, very much so. Foppish would be the the correct descriptor <laughs> for me. Yes. yes. Well, it's an odd combination of the uh the velvet top hat and the birthday boy sash, but <laughs> Anybody can pull it off. It's our own Jed Brewer. I do see that Jed has ditched the glasses for a monocle tonight. Two monocles, which seems like, why are we doing that? But I don't understand fashion. (laughs) Happy birthday to me. (laughs) Two monocles. When you you need corrective vision in both eyes, but you do want people to know when you're shocked. Or they both drop out. I say it, it was either the the dual monocles or getting opera glasses. Oh, that was that was my other oh. option, you know. And I may I may save that for next year's celebration, you know, just a, a variety. When the monocles do fall out in your shock and surprise, you have to follow it up with "I say." <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, it's you know my my alarm and shock are uh, seconded, uh, you know, perhaps only by my uh, deep sense of dissatisfaction that someone has behaved inappropriately. So decorum above all things. Yes, there are some things that aren't, there are cricket, and that old boy is not cricket. Don't know what that (laughs) means, but that's what they say. They they do say that. Also, I'd like to go back to the opera glass thing, because I've... Of the antiquated kind of things that make a comeback, I would really like opera glasses to do so, but replacing like readers. So you know how sometimes, yeah. and we're all in this as we age, you have to yeah. take that moment. Where, okay, I either it's far away or new. I have to I have to put on lenses to do that. But imagine if instead of like pulling out the plastic readers, someone just pulled opera glasses out of their pockets <laughs> when the when the menu came to the table. Yes. <laughs> now that's a classy move, dude. That's a classy move with the pinky up in the air. Yeah, I like the idea oh, of yeah. being at like a a brewery where you know they do the the menu on the chalkboard behind the thing. Yeah, and like what do you have, sir? And just pulling your opera glasses out and being like, hmm. Yes. I see that <laughs> avocado comes on that burger. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the spirit of seeing market opportunities, like I I am not a, a person who vapes. But I, I know that there are many who, who enjoy getting the vapors. I also appreciate using person-first language when describing them. Thank you. Thank you. So, but, you know, when you think, you know, similar to, to our anachronisms, you know, the, uh, I actually don't even know what this is called, but the cigarette holder that's a long stick that people would use. Oh, yeah. The Cruella DeVille style. That's right. That's right. I'm talking Cruella. Now cheroot, I'm talking. I believe. Is that what it's called? I believe it's called a cheroot. That is the fanciest thing that's ever been dropped on this podcast. (laughs) All right. So here's what I'm talking about. It's a cheroot for your vape. Like, think how classy you'd feel (laughs) if, like, you pull out, like, this three-foot-long selfie stick, but it's a cheroot for your vape. Like, that would be, like, dang, dude, that guy's classy, man. What would be the modern (laughs) style and fabric for, like, 
uh, like a coat with tails. Oh, you know, like that's <laughs> like a vape, question. like a vape cheroot, and then like a hoodie with tails. I think, yeah, I think it's like a, an oversized hoodie, but it's tucked into the front of the pants, but not the back. <laughs> this is my morning dress hoodie. Please. That's right, like patent leather Hirachis. It's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, that's very, very good. Yeah. You know, they, they, they say that part of the online kind of brain poisoning being on the internet is, and you'll see this a lot on the social medias, of people kind of inventing someone to be mad at. Yeah. Like, oh, the snowflakes do this, whatever. Do. I, like the, I like this inversion of inventing a really weird guy, but to be delighted by. Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah, dude. Yeah. This is, look, this is a recipe for joy right here. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. Go right ahead, sir. This is an insane combination of eccentricities, but I now want to walk through Wicker Park in Chicago and see that guy and be like, you know what? He's really doing something. Good for him. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so so further idea with the hoodie, you know, like the morning dress hoodie, as you unzip it, it reveals a built-in ascot. Like, it's already oh. there. It oh, just wow. shows up as you unzip it. How great would that be? It unfurls. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, much like the the menu opera glasses, it is to be deployed when you want to an extra level of fanciness. That's right. That's like right. The guy's on, on in demand. the morning dress hoodie walking to brunch and realizes, oh, this is actually a little nicer spot than I thought. And just his ascot inflates <laughs> out of the neck. It's like, well, now we're ready. And and then he and then he like pulls out the teacup pig with its own Instagram account. Oh yeah. <laughs> the idea of various forms of neck adornment that can be deployed kind of like with a Reebok pump system. Cause like wow, the, the, the next go. one is like the, the inflatable Flemish collar. Like we sure. really need to just, you know, <laughs> kick things up a notch. That is adjustable. So when you're at a party and you see a guy with a higher collar than yours, you can adjust it. So yours is now higher than his <laughs> or like the, I don't know what the name for it is, but like those Shakespearean like coffee filter that went around the neck. Sure. The ruffle. Like the ruffle. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> not to be confused with wow. ruffles, which are delicious, but not fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> that's what well, you say when I'm on my true. couch and the crumbs are on me. Now that's a yeah. combination. Maybe that's why they're called that. You wear the neck ruffle <laughs> and catch your ruffles crumbs in it. That's right. And then you have an extra plate of ruffles at the end. Yeah, yeah, you get you get to re-enjoy those bad boys. <laughs> well, as you probably guessed, this is a uh, Christian advice podcast. Yep. <laughs> this is your first time joining us. Um welcome. Oh, uh we're glad you're still here and uh maybe a bit confused. Maybe you did go back to check your podcast player of choice to see if you had in fact downloaded the thing where we promised answers to questions. And indeed you did, but uh, there's also shenanigans and uh, whatnot up top. And occasionally a little thing we have to do where we're forced to declare an emergency. Oh no, what happened? Well, this is, and we're talking about the, the delightful side of the, of the internet here and, you know, creating a guy to be delighted by. And then there's taking someone who already exists and creating a weird version of them. Okay. And to that, I present to you, gentlemen, you may not be familiar or not, a Twitter account called at C.S. Lewis Daily. Okay. Uh-oh. Sinona. Then Recent a link. tweet link um, to the gentleman here in the chat. So as you may guess, um, it has the, the uh, description is inspiring quotes from C.S. Lewis. They're 
location is set as Oxford, England. It has 1.6 million followers. Wow. So as you might expect, just, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis quotes. Uh, I follow a Frederick Beekner account that does the same thing. We had a little, little quote, maybe a link to the larger thing. That's cool. Um, and I'm sure that's what it started out as when it got 1.6 million followers. But currently, it appears to just be a weird content farm for something called BeliefNet. Uh-oh. So you've got cool. uh, things like... Five evidences that Jesus that the resurrection of Jesus is not a fairy tale. Proof of Jesus' resurrection. Christ shines cool. in the lives of these major rock legends. Not a C.S. Lewis thing. No. What really happens after you die, according to the Bible? Now, you may think, oh, is that like a till we have faces or something? Nope, just a link to a weird thing. Oklahoma school teacher Crystal McVeigh's near-death experience revealed to her some amazing secrets. Uh-oh. And it just kind of goes on like that. Um, so that's really, really macabre. Yeah, I, but yes. someone took the C.S. Lewis daily quote and then just pivoted it to be about weird Facebook posts that your uncle shares. I know that we are nearing or are on the threshold or have already crossed the finish line of all the Narnia stories becoming public domain at this point. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I didn't see this coming where yeah. the C.S. Lewis Daily was going to have, was going to reference Eminem and DJ Khaled. Yeah. yeah. Um, nine things a husband needs from his wife. That is not a quote from famously not married C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Confirmed bachelor. Quote four years ago, I left the adult film industry when I hit rock bottom and Jesus came. In and transform my life. That's a nice story. It has nothing to do with C.S. Lewis. Not a bit. Now, here, but here's what I'm wondering is, can we, would it be possible to do a reverse version of this yeah. and start like John Calvin Daly or uh, what was the, the focus on the family guy? James Dobson. Dobson. But start at James Dobson Daly and like for a couple yeah. of years, see like, James Dobson quotes like the best thing you can do is hit your kid. Or I don't know what he said. I think that's the, the that's gist pretty of it. close. <laughs> um, Get verified. If you make your children go to church their entire childhood, they're guaranteed to still want to talk to you when they're adults. Another quote by James <laughs> Dobson. Yeah. Yeah. But then like two years in when you've gotten a few hundred thousand followers pivot to like, here's an article about accepting queer people from at James Dobson daily. <laughs> why the rich not paying their taxes is actually anti anti Christian at James Dobson you're, Daily. You're talking about like a like a like a a fifth column thing here, Matt. Yeah, a kind of you know you gotta you gotta wait it out. But eventually, apparently, we don't fact check these things. You just build the follower base. Somebody like well, I don't recall Rush Limbaugh saying anything about how the rich having more power in a society is an affront to God, but. At Rush Limbaugh Daily tweeted it, so that's kind of, I mean, <laughs> who are we to say? And there's that blue check. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I see no problems with this plan. I am fully in favor. Oh, I, sc I scrolled down through about 25 tweets and did get to an actual C.S. Lewis quote, I think. Quote, human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. I don't think that's probably the full context of the quote from Mr. Lewis. 
Probably not. And right be- right below that, actor Tyrese warns about making devil worshiping mainstream. <laughs> right on. Not something that Lewis was concerned about. Yeah. I think that's what I'm confused about here because um, Twitter has become an unusable uh, mess of an app. We all know that. But so the people who follow this, and there's 1.6 million of them, is it just people who follow all the other kind of right wing Christian culture war things? So this just gets lost in the, you know, it's this person tweeting about this and it's all kind of the same stuff. Or is there someone who's like, huh? C.S. Lewis put, tweeted an article about how God sends us warning through our dreams. That's interesting. I like the Narnia books. I might as well check this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also like that that C.S. Lewis on C.S. Lewis Daily, which let, let's be clear for the for the listeners, since podcasting is not a visual medium, the avatar profile pic for the account is is a is an image of C.S. Lewis, which makes one think that he's driving content, even though he died in 1963. So here's the thing I love about this. There are 1.6 million followers, but much in the vein of like Neil Diamond, C.S. Lewis Daily follows uh, 16 or no, 13 people. Okay. Neil Diamond famously only follows himself. Now that's second to my, one of my favorite um, social media facts, which is the official KFC accounts follows the five Spice Girls and six guys named Herb. So they follow 11 Herbs and Spices. That is actually true, and uh, I'm. I hope the social media intern who came up with that got the job. That's pretty funny, man. That's kind of incredible. And with the CS Lewis one, if you look at who the account is following, the very first one, Jed. Yeah, it kind of lets you know where they're coming from. Let's see here. Oh my, we've got at CS Lewis quotes at Daily Shakespeare, Daily Lift Us, Belief Net, Shocker, at CS Lewis. Uh, Patricia Heaton, who you may remember as the mother from Everybody Loves Raymond, um, who has become a uh, whatever the ter- nice term for right wing nut job is, and then capping it off at Ann Coulter. Yep. Oh no. And then someone named Voice Alano, voice cello piano debut single out now. So some of this is interesting. Oh, and then a uh, famed Brazilian football player Kaká. Yeah. So Mr. Lewis has some, a wide range of interests. So that's nice. (laughs) But yeah, so we, we need to find, find out this, this, I, this is a weird new version of catfishing. You tend to be someone who's been dead for 40 years before the platform opens and then just feed your weird, um, SEO spam articles into the, (laughs) the feed. That's it. Well, in turn, one small attention to detail that I do appreciate is, you know, kind of on the the banner, you know, with the name and everything, they they list it as being based in Oxford, England. Yeah. And I think there's a 0% chance that whoever's operating this account is in or has ever been to Oxford, England. No, but I, I appreciate that we're insisting on that. They're in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Jed. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. It's yeah. Fayetteville. <laughs> we all know per- this. That was perfectly chosen and correct. Yes, yes. I don't know yes. why, but it is definitely Fayetteville. <laughs> it's not even Little Rock. It's Fayetteville. No, yeah. it's Fayetteville. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they wouldn't put up with this in Pine Bluff, but. <laughs> Yes, and as, as we close out this section of weird uh, tech uh, abominations, I will share one extra one with you. You guys familiar with a gentleman named Brian Johnson? Like the uh, singer from ACDC? No, uh, probably not. No. Uh, you may know okay. the story. So there's a guy who's been in the news a bit lately because he's a billionaire who is trying oh. to reverse his aging. What? Okay. Um, so he claims that, like, oh, I do all this. You, there's been a bunch of articles. Like, oh, you... I yeah. think the mitochondria is fighting against you there, pal. Well, he's got. So if if you Google him, Brian with a Y, you get a, here's the, here's the, this is a good pastiche. Here's some of the articles yeah. pops up. Brian Johnson eats last email, eat last meal at 11 a.m. as part of his anti-aging regime. How to be 18 years old again for only $2 million a year. And then here's the kicker. Uh, one, Brian Johnson says he saw, quote, no benefits after, after injecting himself with his son's plasma. He vampired was- his own child because he thought, man, he's younger than me. Maybe putting his blood in me will make me younger. <laughs> wow, dude. So this is a clearly insane tech billionaire who like had some wellness app he sold. And he's trying to, uh, you know, reverse his aging because he's terrified of his own mortality like they all are. But switch, so you know, part of the course. But here's a recent tweet from a couple of days ago as we record this. Quote, Jesus fed bread and alcohol, impairing and aging. I will feed you nutrients that awake and create life. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a supervillain speech, my man. Yeah, yeah, there there are strong like evil overlord vibes there, man. Yeah. I just I I need to be tied to something so the monologue can hit correctly. Yeah. That and that's not just normal supervillain. That's like a watchman supervillain speech. Yeah. Dark like yeah. dark lighting. Yeah. That's uh, that's an I did it 35 minutes ago speech. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, which points again to, and I know this is a bit ironic for guys who have a podcast. I've done a fair amount and a previous job. Jed and I did a fair amount of stuff online, social media. Um, if, you're, if your main way to be a Christian is like, I'm going to do stuff on social media, maybe rethink that because yep. not entirely sure that's possible. Got to go into the meat space, interact with the people. That's cool. And uh, keep uh, Twitter for what it's meant for, you know, um, sharing clips and uh, the occasional uh, ranting about sports. That's healthy. Or if you're if you're uh, Jed and on Facebook, have a delightful uh, series of semi unhinged food style <laughs> prompts <laughs> that lead to an avalanche of uh, food based puns in your comment section, which say- is always a delight. I was going to say delightful puns. Thank you. Thank I, I wasn't going to use I wasn't going to use semi unhinged. Well, uh, the most recent one I recall there. is about the evil version of PB and J. Yeah, and I I I don't think we in a good conscience say that is fully hinged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so and I want to be clear that this was authentic because I was like just hanging out and I was just like, yeah, man, the bread of idleness. It's like, what could you pair with that? Well, there's the grapes of wrath. And I started thinking, like, dude, you could make like a diabolical PB and J. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> so, yes. I believe the thing was what would the what would the peanut butter substitute be? And for some reason, I know it's not technically a literally evil. In the other, words, my first thought was just almond butter because <laughs> if you've ever tried to substitute peanut butter, almond butter, peanut butter, that's evil. Yeah, fair. That's an evil experience. Fair. Yeah. Yes. So on that note, we will declare. 
really several strands of emergency off. And we are move they? on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us, you can have us all the way to the end, or you can click the link, scroll down to your episode description, click the links you find there, and get in touch with us that way. Our first question comes in and says, what's the difference between, quote, walking in faith and just not thinking through decisions? I think it's a very, a very good question. We, we've talked about this particular dynamic uh, several times, I think, over the life of this show, but I like the... Um, as ever, when we see something in quotes in one of these questions, that makes us think, you've heard someone say this out loud recently and had the very reasonable thought of, that may not be what they're talking about, which is which is a great point. And uh, Jed, I'd love to get you to kick us off here because I think I, I totally sympathize with our question asker because there's such a thing as as walking in faith and as you know, stepping out into reaching for a hand in the dark, as they say. And then there's people who are professing Christians who just, you know, can I afford this $70,000 car? No, but you know, you got to have faith. faith. Absolutely. As they say. So where do we go about maybe finding a, a helpful line between I'm when I'm making a decision based in faith and when I'm just doing the thing I want to do that maybe I shouldn't do. Absolutely. Well, I think it can. And I think this is one of those cases. It can be useful to, to kind of ask, what is the non-religious version of this? Because I think it's very, very easy for any of us to feel like one spirituality enters the picture is different rules. So let's, let's kind of ask, is there a non-religious, a non-spiritual version of this idea? And it turns out there actually is. So here are a couple quick maxims from uh, human history, from fairly modern to very ancient, but they're basically all saying the same thing. The first one is, be bold, and mighty forces will come to your aid, which is another description of living by faith. The next one, who dares, wins, which is a description of a kind of living by faith. The next one, fortune favors the bold, which is another description of a form of living by faith. And what all of these have in common is an explanation that in life, there are sometimes big steps that we want to take where we're going to kind of need things to work out for this to work out, right? Like we are going to be taking a step into the unknown. We're going to be taking a step into a direction where we can't guarantee an outcome. And we're going to hope that in some kind of, of mysterious way, things come together and, and make it possible for, for it to land and for things to succeed. And, Part of why these phrases exist, because they're not exactly aspirational, is more often than you'd expect, those maxims are true. Who dares oftentimes is the person who wins. That's not always true, but it is often true. Fortune does often favor the bold. It's not always true, but it's it's often true. Um, when you uh, you know lean into boldness, Mighty forces do often come to your aid. That is often true. It may not be true all the time, but it is it is often true. And I think what is interesting is that this actually, these phrases and these maxims go right along with the words of Jesus who said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. One of the things that I've found in my life, both as a human being, but also as a follower of Jesus, is that the things he said very often had layers to them, um, and the layers often begin with an observation of just how life on planet Earth works, 
and then go deeper into an underlying spiritual reality. And I would submit to you that when Jesus talked about asking and seeking and knocking, that's true there. It is simply true of life that when you start asking for help, when you start asking for guidance, when you start asking for assistance, sooner or later you will receive it. You're very likely to. In the same way, if you're seeking something, you have a way of finding it. You, you, you really, really do. If, if you are going around knocking on doors, eventually you will find someone that will open a door. Th- these really do tend to be true. And then we can add to that a deeper layer, which is a spiritual reality that God himself cares about the things that you are asking for and the things that you are seeking and the doors upon which you are knocking and wants to join you in that journey and wants to be one of the mighty forces that comes to your aid. Now then, to your question, how is that different from not thinking through decisions? So I started a nonprofit a couple years ago, and I am in a constant position of asking and seeking and knocking. Like everywhere I go all the time, I'm in a constant position of trying to put these maxims to the test of seeing if I'm bold, will mighty forces come to my aid? And if I dare, will I win? And if I am bold, will fortune favor me? Like I'm, I'm for the last two and a half years, I've, I've been all day, every day trying to put those to the test. And here's one of the things about that is if you're looking for help from people who are worth getting help from, they're going to start asking you tough questions. They're going to start asking you, have you thought this through? People don't have a tendency to just give you money. They want to know, why are you doing this? What is this? How will this work? Who will benefit? When will it happen? On what scale will it happen? Um, How will you know you succeeded? How will you measure your outcomes? These are good questions to be asked. And if you're not trying to start some form of a, a business, which includes nonprofits, those might, the questions that are relevant to your situation might be different, but there are still questions to be asked. And in fact, a lot of fortune favoring you, a lot of mighty forces coming to your aid, a lot of God providing for you are actually people who will ask you tough questions about your situation. Why are you doing this? How do you intend to do this? What, how will this work? What is, what is this? And you're planning on going route A. Why are you not going route B? Like these are very, very, very good. My version of walking in faith requires thinking through everything. What I would say to you is that the idea of not thinking through your decisions is actually the antithesis of walking by faith. That's just fantasy. Walking by faith involves work, man. Walking by faith involves uh, making a plan and revising a plan and talking to experts and being creative, going to people and saying, hey, uh, here's what I'm thinking. Shoot holes in it. Tell me the reasons this won't work. Help me construct a better plan. People, in my view, who are truly walking by faith, including in a non-religious context, are thinking things through with a extreme depth and detail focus. That other stuff that you're talking about, again, that's just wishful thinking and hoping that it works out. I think that's a really <laughs> fantastic way to start that and a really useful lens through which to see that. And Lee, where would we take it from there? I'm going to piggyback right on the place where, where Jeb was leaving that off. Uh, there's this idea that the I, that you know walking by faith means I don't question, I don't think, I don't measure. I just go for it. I just jump off the cliff or something like that. And then, you know, Jesus take the wheel and, and God's got me kind of thing. And what I would say is that actually um, <clears throat> the best version of walking by faith includes a lot of thinking. It includes a lot of working through things. I think a robust 
like a robust relationship with the living God, with an invisible God, includes tons of thinking, tons of like figuring out what it looks like to to process in a healthy way the things that you're experiencing, the things that you're feeling, the things that you're going through, understanding your emotions. I mean, one of the biggest things that we, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, you know, occasionally over different years and different subjects, is this idea of, do you know why you're motivated for the thing you are? Do you know what is holding you back from the thing that you're um, uh, nervous about? Do you know what you're afraid of in different outcomes? If you haven't processed any of those questions, we just haven't done due diligence to like, what, like which step do we need to take? All of the, all of that kind of stuff in healthy processing is actually like, to me is a, is a prerequisite to actually getting anywhere in prayer. I don't know that we get anywhere in prayer if we haven't done the kind of healthy processing that looks like, what am I afraid of? What are my actual motivations? Um, what are the things that I'm nervous about? What are the things that are holding me back? All of that kind of processing is necessary for a life of faith. All of that stuff denotes like an actual and robust relationship with God. Being honest about what we're looking at, what we're feeling, trying to understand all of those things, measuring them, and then sometimes going through several stages of that. Okay, here's what I'm afraid of. So to me, only this possibility is out there. Taking that kind of thing to the Lord and, and getting some feedback on, have you thought about this? Have you looked at this other possibility? Sometimes we kind of, in a weird way, we kind of cut the Lord off at the knees in saying like, okay, it's only A or B, when he would have C, D, and E as other possibilities. But we don't even know because we haven't thought through any of those things. We've got to have the kind of healthy processing that especially, especially deals with our emotions through several phases of decision-making. Otherwise, I don't know that we're actually walking in faith at any point. All of those things are prerequisites to prayer. All of those things denote a healthy relationship with the Lord. I think it's it's a great point. I think the other thing I would add on to the great stuff that these guys gave you is to, it goes back to where Jed started us off with ideas like fortune favors the bold and who dares wins. There's a certain secularized version of that where by stepping out and kind of moving in this direction, you can make the world bend to your will and meet you in that. And I think sometimes the whole walking in faith thing is basically a way of doing that with God in the equation of kind of, I'm going to take this big, bold step and that's pretty much going to make it so that God bends the universe around making it so that I get what I want, that I took this big, bold step towards, which is just not the way things work because that's not the relationship you actually have with the world versus the relationship God has with the world. You know, and I think ask, seek and knock is a very useful other side of that coin because in that there is, and I think Lee makes the very good point as well, kind of this idea of a prerequisite to prayer. Those are about finding something that's there. It's not really a, a Christian version of, I'm just going to make it happen. Cause that's not in the, in the worldview we have as people who believe there is this divine being that controls everything that we have a relationship with. We're, we're looking to find something that is being made to exist. We are not looking to, 
strong arm something into existence because that's really not our role in things. I think sometimes there's a little bit of when you hear the, oh, you know, just just do it and just start it and God will meet you in that way. Like he'll meet you. I truly believe God does meet us on our path, but in the way he wants to, you can't you can't force God to build you an airplane by jumping off a cliff. You can jump off a cliff and, you know, maybe there'll be a huge updraft that catches you. They don't make any, there's no promises in that way. So you can't force his hand by doing that. So uh, when we're listening to someone who's talking about the big, bold actions and stepping out of faith, I think that's another useful thing to ask yourself. Is this person basically saying, if you put God in a corner by your actions, he will have to give you what you want? Because that is not the way things work. Uh Uh-huh. With that, we're going to move on to our second question here. It comes in and says, why is there or has there been stigma in the church around mental health? I know on paper it isn't different than taking medication. There's not a difference between taking medication for mental health and physical health, but somehow the feelings around it don't always seem like they line up as Christian. Why do the shame and guilt around this stuff exist? Why are there feelings of failure and such things put on that? Thank you so much for writing in. It's an excellent question, and there's a lot of great stuff there. So, Jed, where would we start out? It is a great question. So, and I think there's actually uh, several layers of answer to this question, but let's let's start with this one. There is a uh, a cognitive bias that people can have. Um, an example is something called a halo effect, and so a halo effect is when you have a positive impression of something, and um, it causes you to assume a thing that isn't actually true. So here's an example. Like if you're, you know, maybe you need to have surgery and you're going to meet with your doctor and the doctor is just a really nice person with a great bedside manner. You feel like he'll probably be really good at surgery. There's absolutely no reason to think that. Like these things are not linked in any way at all. Um, An even more common one is that people perceive good looking human beings as, oh, they're probably a good person, Um, which there's definitely no reason to, to make that connection. But all of us have a way, have certainly have an ability and, and pretty commonly do to, in our mind, assume a linkage where there is not a necessary linkage. So what does that have to do with your question? What it has to do with your question is that a lot of us have been fed kind of this implication by Christian culture, which is, if I just grow enough as a Christian, all of my anxiety will be gone. If I yep. just grow enough as a Christian all of my sadness and depression will go away. And this, similar to a halo effect, is a cognitive bias that's not true. There's absolutely no connection, no no necessary connection, between spiritual growth and not having unhappy feelings and thoughts. There's actually not a necessary connection between those things. Well, Jed, then why does the Bible describe Jesus as a man of happiness well acquainted with joy? (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that. Um, very much to that point, it describes Jesus as a man of sorrows. Um, but let's not just stop with Jesus. Paul uh, clearly is a dude who's having a hard time much of the time and describes himself as as dealing with an overbearing amount of stress in his life. Um, David, who is a I was going to after- say, dude, that guy needed to be on medication, man. No question. David was needed as as much care as he could get. Man after God's own heart. We can we can keep going. Um, the i the idea that 
an intimate relationship with God, and Jesus is the the perfect, the literally perfect example of that. The idea that that would result in not being a man of sorrows, um, that that is anti biblical. It, it's just it's just not there. So it's worth asking: How did we get to that point where we're all kind of making that linkage that isn't true? And I think a big part of that is because Christian publishers wanted to sell books. And churches wanted people to sit in those pews and put money in the plate. And so you have a way of promising people things and implying things that simply are not true. And, you know, if you can dig it right, like, I mean, a lot of branding and marketing and advertising is is built off of that concept. Right. Like it's the. It's the guy that's driving the the fancy sports car, and then all of a sudden he's you know really getting a lot of attention from this attractive person um, you know uh, over there. There's no intrinsic connection between you driving a certain kind of car and you getting certain kinds of romantic attention. What are you Not talking necessary. about, Jed? Uh, lingerie models famously love double clutch shifters. <laughs> so. Um, I am a man. He was, he was a man of constant double clutch shifters, um, and acquainted and acquainted with sequential gearboxes. Hey, uh, um, life simply doesn't work that way, but it's really, really useful for marketing. And at a certain point in the 20th century, at least American Christianity got as in bed with marketing as anybody else. Yeah, um, dude. We're we're trying to brand this thing and market this thing just as much as Gunderson's nuts or dial soap. Um and so we're going to follow all of the same rules which to a point does help in getting people to buy those Christian books and sign up for that Christian conference and go to that very fancy church with the fog machine. But grow all you want in your faith and there's great reasons to grow in your faith. It doesn't erase the fact that we are human beings with emotional needs and we are human beings that need all forms of health care, including mental health care, and that the heroes of the faith are people who were a man of sorrows and who were people who were wildly stressed out and who were people who despaired of life and who definitely would have benefited from the kind of mental health care that's available in the 21st century. I think that's where a lot of this stuff begins. There are other factors, too, that are worth getting into, but but I, I would start by saying that the implicit um, halo-style effects that are so common in branding and in marketing and were done on purpose to, to sell books is a lot of how we got into this trouble. That doesn't sound right. That sounds like <laughs> Jed is saying that uh, the capitalist profit motive made something worse, and I don't – that doesn't align with my worldview. <laughs> the free market decided that depression can be cured by positive thinking. And who are we to argue? It, it's trickle down health care. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a horrifying, horrifying combination of words. Uh, but other than that, a lot of great stuff in that answer. Lead, I think uh, Jed started us off great. So how would we close it out? Um, I've got a couple of different ideas that are in opposition to each other that I want to talk about. One is... Um, Jed's exactly right about Christian publishing, marketing, and the promulgation of just the 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 self-promoting uh church industry, which if <laughs> if you came to know Jesus anywhere else besides the West, and you were to read the Gospels and then read the book of Acts when the church got started, the <laughs> 
Oh gosh. I mean, just none of that, none of the things that he just said would make any sense whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) None of them would make any sense whatsoever. There's literally, there's a, there's a segment in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four that you're like, this is communism. There. Yeah. Everyone's sharing everything. Everyone's meeting everyone else's needs. Those who had a lot gave to the ones who didn't have as much so that everyone would have a similar amount. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a soapbox. Okay, a uh, couple things. I completely agree with what Jed's saying. On a that's that's macro uh, in in the church in the West. Let's zoom in a little bit more micro in communities. Okay, there's a thing that is really disturbing and really ludicrous about many, 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 especially evangelical churches, which is the whole thing has been buttressed by the patriarchy and power and the idea that we are the one-stop shop for everything you need in your life. Especially zoom in on the pastors and the leaders are, are the final word of everything that you need to know about marriage, about parenting, about life, all of that was, all of that had pylons of support from Jim Dobson and the, and folks on the family and the radio programs and all that stuff. But the idea was in your little community, you go to your evangelical church and those, the guys running that place are your one-stop shop for everything you need. Now, also, all of that was rife with all kinds of toxic masculinity, which said, I don't need anything. All of these men did not have friends. They didn't have community. They didn't share about their vulnerabilities or their feelings. This was just, guys know what needs to be done. Guys run the church. The church has an answer for all of your problems and all of your issues. You don't need anything else outside of that. That is one side of what happened. Now, here's the opposite of that, which should have happened. And I'm so glad you asked this question, because actually, you're pinpointing something that is so fascinating, which is the pure, a, a pure New Testament version of what Christianity is and an awareness and robust system of mental health coverage and proprietors and, you know, and providers and all that kind of stuff. Those two things should go hand in hand, like a hand in a glove, man. Christianity and mental health care should be best friends. Why? Because so much of mental health care is predicated on the ideas of weakness is strength, honesty is key, community is vital, and medicine is good. <laughs> all of these things, all of the things that I just said, Christianity and mental health care are a perfect circle in a Venn diagram. So I'm just going to go through those again. Weakness is strength. Honesty and vulnerability is good. Community is vital. And medicine is helpful. All of those things, Christianity and mental health care, Completely agree. It, the Venn diagram is a perfect circle, but where we've gotten skewed is we've had, uh, we've we've had churches based on patriarchy that are held up by toxic masculinity who say we are your one stop shop for everything, and we don't need any friends or any help at all. We'll tell you how to run your family, how to run your marriage, 
Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would. I think it's a, ma- a really good point. I would kind of draw out that analogy a little bit because if you are or know someone who's been raised in a somewhat unhealthy environment, particularly where there was a like a father figure or a parent figure, there there's a way of if you were to say to them, "I'm depressed," or "I have this issue," their first thought would be like, "No, that can't be true. I'm a good parent." <laughs> yeah, yeah, the fragility. And yes, I, the fragility. I didn't even mention the fragility. Of and the, we've of seen that a lot of that in Christian yes. culture of no, that can't be true. We're great pastors. We have shiny, happy people here. And that's that, right. not only can you probably not, you sure you don't have some kind of demon? Because it doesn't sound right that you'd hear my preaching every week and that would make you sad, even though I'm terribly bad at preaching. Look, man, and I, I'm so glad you're bringing that up, Matt. And I'm sorry to cut you off, dude. Go but for like, it. I've, like, I, I've never made a resume. I've had, one job interview my entire life. I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I, I've had some wonderful moments and some, I've been a part of some cool stories. I've had some, I mean, Chernobyl failures, like ludicrous moments where I made the wrong call, gave bad advice, and things went terribly wrong. Um, I've had to go back and apologize to people. I've had to learn. I've had to grow. And if, if this is a profession where you have to be right all the time, you're done as a human being. There's no other profession where that's the requirement is you have to have a 0% failure rate yep. and there's no growth available. Um, I've, I've had cataclysmic failures as, as a professional in this industry to use kitschy words, but like we can't have that kind of fragility in an, in industry of care. Yeah, well said, absolutely. Dude. And I think there, to that point, there's also to have an industry of care, which is a it sh- pastoring should be among what uh, is referred to by in, in kind of older generation as the caring professions, along with doctors, counselors, social workers, that kind of thing. Um, the idea of any of, of any of those other places um, that if someone needed a, what they would call like a cross service or a complementary service. If you, um, the idea that your oncologist, if you also had a skin condition, would say, "What well, do you need to see a dermatologist for?" <laughs> you don't believe yes, in a good oncologist? Right, yes. Yeah. Like, dude, that's in that's an insane way to live, my man. Yeah. But I think to go back to your your kind of core question of why is there this kind of stigma. And luckily, in a lot of environments, if it's not in your particular uh, church or your denomination, whatever, we're sorry for that. In a lot of areas, this is one of the few areas where the kind of mainline American Western church is getting better, I think, yeah. compared to yeah. 20 years ago. The idea of uh, therapy or uh, mental health medication is just much more generally destigmatized in the culture, and that's kind of washed down in Christian stuff. But to the extent there is still a stigma around it, I think. It is the idea that it is a failure, not necessarily of you, the individual, but you're saying that this infrastructure of the church, now I think the people who are fighting against that would say you're saying Christianity or you're saying God can't meet those needs, which uh, God did create more than the church, so that idea doesn't hold up at all, Um, but that you're poking a hole saying I have a problem that cannot be fixed in this building. There's a lot of modern and American, particularly American Western church culture that is built around the idea that everything you need is in this building. Yeah. The coffee yeah, shop yeah. is in this building. 
the bookstore is in this building. The you don't need friends who aren't in this building. You don't need childcare yep. in this building. You don't need movies that we don't have in this building. You don't need music that we don't approve in this building. So to say, not only do I need someone's building, the most critical thing in my life I need right now, and I cannot get it here, and I should not get it here. I'm going elsewhere. That's if you are around leadership or church leadership that is threatened by that, then that is a big red flag and something we do want to move on from and find a place where that's not in the case. All right. With that, we're going to move on to our final question. He says, how do I be a good friend to people who are younger than me? I'm not a mentor or anything officially, but I, there are younger people in my church and I want to be a positive person for, I think this is a fantastic question. And Jed, where do we start off here? I love this question. And I really, I just want to start by zeroing in on, you said, how do I be a good friend to people? Man, that is such a cool question, and it's such a cool goal. And I want to highlight for you that figuring out how to be a friend is a skill. It is something that you can get better at, and it's, it's not just about having a heart to be there for somebody that's, that's part of it, but that there there's a skill element to it and figuring out how to live things out. So I think this is really cool. I'm going to give you some general ideas because the details really matter on who you are and who these friends are and what are the age differences and, you know, how do you guys know each other and how do you, what are the contexts in which you interact? But there's two things in particular that are kind of high level that I'd encourage you to look at. The first is I would encourage you to find ways to be generous with your resources. So, you know, maybe if you're going out, you know, you pick up lunch, but even more than money, I'd encourage you to be generous with your network, Mm. to be generous with your Rolodex, to be generous with your connections. There are few things more impactful on a person's life than the people that they have access to. A lot of people are... A lot of folks, I think, are not clear on this, but oftentimes access is more important than money. Mm-hmm. Um, access can be turned into money. Money can't always be turned into access. And one of the things about being older is that you have built, by necessity, a broader network of human beings that you are connected to than people who are younger than you. Um, even if you haven't intentionally been trying to build a network, like you probably know a plumber and a lawyer, and a um, a mechanic, and an electrician, and you have friends from back in the day, and th- this guy, he's an architect and whatnot, right? You, you know more people than you think you do, and being willing to share access is transformative. Like, and this is one of those where it's a form of generosity, which is also a skill. The more you do it, the better you will get at it, but a lot of good generosity is about learning to see connections, I want to encourage you mm. to look for opportunities to introduce your younger friends to your broader network. Look for moments where it is organic and makes sense to make those introductions. And then you get to develop the skill, which is also a skill, of figuring out how to make effective introductions. Where it's not just, Steve, this is Bob. Bob, this is Steve. Well, anyway, I'm leaving. But where you give context on who these people are and what's great about them and why they should know each other and how you think the world of both of them. This, th- these are skill sets, but once you make up your mind to do them, you can find opportunities, and the more you do them, you will get better at them. So again, share your resources, but the number one I want to encourage you to look at is access, is connections, nice. is your network of relationships. The other thing that I want to encourage you to look at is 
part of being an adult and having been an adult for a while is there's a fair amount of stuff that you've had to do that doesn't have a lot of teeth for you anymore because you've had to do it. Right. So like think about uh, a pipe burst in your house and now you got to call a plumber in the middle of the night because you got to get this fixed. If you've done that before, it's not nearly as overwhelming as if you've never done that before. It's a cruddy thing to have been through, but once you've been through it, it's, you know, it's a lot more manageable than, than the first time that you go through it. To be young, by definition, is to be facing things for the first time. And given that you're facing them for the first time, you don't have a lot of good insights on how to handle them. And one thing that I, I know my co-hosts will agree with me on is you would not believe how much people's parents didn't teach them. Oh, 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 yeah. I want to say that again, and I want you to, th- to really think about this. You would not believe how much people's parents did not teach them. When you see these really snarky and mean-spirited uh, things online about, oh, Gen Z doesn't even know how to do X, Y, Z, that's a failure of their parents. That's not a failure of the kid. The, the parents never taught them how to do whatever that thing is, so of course they don't know. No one's born with knowledge, man. Your younger friends, there are things that they don't know how to do that they probably feel embarrassed about, that they almost certainly feel intimidated by, because anything that you've not done before is scary and weird. Figuring out how to be a person who is epically nonjudgmental and is happy to take on a surrogate big brother role or big sister role, even for a few minutes of, oh, it's no problem. Let's walk through it together. I can show you how to do this. Man, that is friending real good. That is yeah. that is the high quality being a friend. And if you're not sure how to do that, I bet if you think back through your life, you've had people do that for you. Think about the people who did that for you, who were the best at it, and start off by just aping what they did, man. Just channel what they did. But if you will look for opportunities to um, kind of help teach life skills, basically, and you'll look for opportunities to share your network, I think that you will be well on your way to being one heck of a good friend to people that are younger than you. Nice. A fantastic place to start that off. And Lee, what do we have there? That's really great, man. This is gonna. This response, in some ways, is gonna feel like, like almost the opposite of that. But it, it, they're they're actually these responses are actually buddies. Um, and so that's right. We're doing dialectics this week on the Say That podcast. Deal with that, egghead. I'm breaking out my opera glasses. Go on. (laughs) So, um, one of the things that that. I just know from having good friends and also from having bad friends is ask a lot of questions about that person. Just ask a lot of questions, man. It, there's nothing so tiresome as being the person who is really generous and curiosity about a relationship. And that person just never gives you anything back. They never ask you anything about you. Yep. Um, ask, ask questions, but then Look for a moment to ask a follow-up question. Let 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 the tree branch off into details. Give a person opportunities to talk about themselves and what's exciting about their life. And be interested in their life. That's one of the heartbeats of being a friend to someone is you interest me. And here's yeah. how much you interest me. I want to know more. Tell me more about what you're saying about yourself. Um, be interested in who that person is, man. Sometimes when, especially if you just find a, a, a kid that is having a hard time connecting with other folks, 
when you express some genuine interest in the thing that makes their eyes light up, man, and then you find a follow-up question about that thing that makes their eyes light up, you have absolutely made their week. I I can't tell you how many times I've watched this play out. And let me give you a, a similar thing. And this is the thing that's going to sound like it's a little bit opposite of what Jeb was saying. It's not. It's a, it's a buddy to that thing. Is see if you can find a thing that that kid can teach you about. Yup. So this is a thing that I've experienced in decades of working with young people. Almost every adult that they interface with is a parent, a teacher, or a coach, or an administrator. Those people give them rules. Those people give them consequences. Those people give them shame. Sometimes those people give them accolades, but I'm telling you, it's out of balance with rules, consequences, and shame. So what a lot of adults do not give young people in their life is the opportunity to for the young person to teach an older person a thing. If, you f- if you're in a conversation with a young person you're becoming friends with, and they get onto a thing, and they don't know, I'll give you a stupid example, man. Okay, I'm, I'm at a basketball game. I'm at a high school basketball game with my 14-year-old son and his best friend. And we see from across the gym the athletic director, who's full-on 70 years old, is wearing the flyest shoes I've ever seen in my life, like the flyest kicks, like some really, really great shoes. So knowing that my son's best friend is really, really into tennis shoes, I lean over and said, yo, Nathan, look over there. The athletic director, that guy's 70 years old. What shoes is he wearing? This kid lights up like a Christmas tree. He breaks out his phone. He gets onto a website and he shows me exactly how The Jordan 11 Concords are different than the regular Jordan 11s. I have no idea what he's talking about. Dude, tell me everything. Suddenly, I'm getting a history on specifically what makes the Concord a $600 pair of shoes. And now this kid is marveling that the athletic director of a a small regional high school has a $600 pair of kicks. And I'm... I'm just, this is a dumb thing, but this kid is teaching me something I don't know. Give a young person the chance to teach you as an adult something you don't know. And all of a sudden, man, you're lighting up their world. It's such a cool thing. Jed's exactly right. There's so many places where you can help a kid. I I sat with a kid at a Young Life camp four weeks ago with tears down his face saying his his extended family members make fun of him cuz he's 18 he doesn't have a driver's license but nobody's ever taken him to the DMV. Jed's exactly right. You take a kid to the DMV, you help him get the book, you walk him through some of the the things that are going to be hard on the test, you're going to change his life. At the same time, you let that same kid teach you something about rap music or about whatever, about anime, about whatever, and you've made their week again. So give a young person the chance to teach you something. It's going to change the game. All fantastic stuff from these guys. An- another option I would throw in there, and again, this is not in any way a counter to those, to the advice you've heard about giving, about teaching, about giving lessons. That's super important. But I think it is also nice to find a way where it is also appropriate to share without teaching. Yeah, because mm. as, as Lee said, if you're a certain type, if you're a young person, you most of the people you interact with who are older than you are in some capacity where it is their 
either their job or they assume it is their job to to educate you. And there we all know the very well-meaning older guy who thinks who wants to teach you a lesson about all things in all times. It is a really cool thing to just be able to share something with someone as a peer, even if they are younger than you, have a discussion in that way without if it's not appropriate in the conversation without shifting that gear to, and let me tell you about the lesson of the thing I just told yeah, you. Yeah. 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 Let's say like, Oh, you're dealing with this. And you know what? I actually, you know, a pipe burst in your house. You got a plumber. Yeah, no, we, we know a guy. That's cool. Here's a story about a time that happened to me at one in the morning and all I had to run downstairs and slipped in the thing. Isn't that funny? And you don't have to shift to, and let's talk about proper pipe care. <laughs> <laughs> you know what dripping your sink is, Johnny? Do you have any flux? Um, yeah. Like there's a moment for that, certainly if they need it, but it also, you can just treat them as if they were a peer because one of the things that I think is a super huge advantage to life of being part of a church that really there's not that much of it in other areas of American life is cross-generational friendships. Yep. The idea that I go to this church and, you know, I have a, I, my friend's kid, but I know them. I, in some weird way have a 17 year old friend we see each other at church we can you know talk about the game or whatever i also have a 65 year old friend who i don't work with who i don't you know have a particular uh context for this relationship beyond they are my friend even if i'm 30 years younger than they are that's a very very cool thing about just letting those cross-generational friendships be and be peer relationships it's, it's a cool thing now there are moments to to introduce someone to your network, to teach someone a le- to teach someone they need, to give someone a ride to the DMV if they need it, but the background radiation of that relationship can just be we are friends, and that makes those moments where you you have that all the more powerful, I think. So awesome, awesome stuff from these guys. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. Take this song this week from the Pool House Guru. We mentioned David and his really probably need for a lot of medication that wasn't available at the time. So we'll take out some of his words. This is Pulaski Guru's take on Psalm 147.3. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. He heals those who have broken hearts. He takes care.